welcome to yet another fabulous episode of the Rocks and Roots podcast where we have a very special guest. All our guests are very special, but this is an extra special, very special guest. And uh, before we introduce him for the third time, my co-host who has his, uh, oh, there he is. There he is, Mr. Crank. How are you, Mr. Crank? I am doing much better. If you listen to my hour mini episode and then saw the Instagram video, I was not doing so good Saturday, <laughs> but I am doing much, much better. Excellent. We want to see you walking and running. Yes. So we would like to welcome Frankie Wild back to the podcast for round three. Last Hello, Frankie. Frankie. How are you, Frankie? How's it going, guys? Thanks so much for having me back. Absolutely. You are welcome. <clears throat> We last spoke to you in October, and we started to discuss your trip from Denver to Chicago with fellow cyclist Michael Glickman, and we didn't get to everything, so we said, we'll have you back on soon, and it is now March 21st. So it's (laughs) been a bit, but we are finishing up our discussion. Welcome back. Have you been? Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I've been pretty good. I've been looking to... Uh, finishing our discussion for quite a while. I haven't had a chance to think about this trip that much in the last few months, so it's really nice to revisit it with you guys. Excellent, and we are glad to have you back. So last time we discussed pretty much the beginning of your journey. We discussed oxygen in a can. Um, Fun times were had by all. (laughs) So go back and listen. Uh, We'll put the episode link in this episode description because I don't remember what number it is off the top of my head. I just know it was October. We'll forgive you this time. That's okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, So kind of picking up from where we left off. So you, you were out there for how long again? How many weeks? So the whole trip from start to finish me leaving New York on the train to returning to New York on the train was 31 days. The actual time on the bicycle, uh, my itinerary might prove me wrong, but, uh, if I remember correctly, it was actually only 25 days that I was out in Colorado on the bike. Okay. Which may seem like a lot to some, but to Frank, it's it's absolutely nothing since he's had a few epic journeys already. Yeah, this one was a little shorter than the previous ones, but uh, as as we discussed before, Colorado, really there is no shortage of excitement. Every mile is absolutely incredible. How many miles and did you do overall? If I remember correctly... Um, the, the itinerary that I laid out was a total of about 1100 miles. Mm-hmm. Mike and I both deviated from the original itinerary a bit. Um, if I had to guess, I ended up riding somewhere between, uh, 1200 and 1250 miles, okay. but yeah. Uh, well over a thousand miles and a thousand miles well spent. I bet. Was it a, I, I also forget since it's been about six months now. Um, we are nothing it, but timely. Yes, for if sure. anything else on but, this podcast. You know, we, we, we make our problem. We keep our promises. Um, <laughs> was it a point to point or was it a circle that you did? This, this was a point to point. The trip started in Denver 
And Grand Junction, if you draw a straight line, I think is only about 300, maybe 400 miles away. Okay. Uh, there are quite a few mountains in between, but on an actual train ride, you can get from Grand Junction to Denver or vice versa in less than six hours. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a very small state, for sure. No, certainly not. <laughs> and we took the scenic route on our way from uh, one city to another. And correct me if I'm wrong, I just did the math. Uh, that works out to about 40 miles a day, which is actually on a bike, not a lot. So it seems like you guys were really enjoying the trip and not like, we got to do 100 miles a day. We got to push it. Um, is that kind of was that your attitude throughout that month? Well, it would be 40 miles a day if we rode every day. Um, okay. What's, what's different definitely from this trip compared to previous trips is because Mike and I knew that we were going to visit, uh, some national parks and some national monuments in our itinerary, we programmed rest days. So we had 26 days on the road, but I think about only 20 or 21 of them were actually travel days. Any of those other days we would be hiking or, uh, uh, spending time seeing, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, local, local stuff. Mesa Verde was one of them. Uh, and I guess we'll get to talk a bit more about that tonight. Um, you know, rest day is, I guess, kind of a, a, a figurative term because every day uh, either Mike or myself or both of us were out doing something. If we weren't on the bike, we were hiking. Which you're actually using different muscle. So it does count as a rest day because you're using different muscle groups. So I'm, I'm counting those as rest days. Well done. Fair enough. So what was a typical day like? Like, when did you guys wake up? How many hours did you usually spend on the bike? And when did you usually stop for the day? So in terms of waking up, I would say for me, um, my routine is pretty consistent across. Uh, I've been on four trips. I would say the one trip I did alone, trip number two, and then the two trips I have done with uh, other cyclists, the trip in 2021 and the trip last year in Colorado, my routine is pretty much the same. I generally like to wake up either an hour or up to 90 minutes before dawn. Um, it gives me some time to pack up things in my tent, get out of the tent, start disassembly and work on making breakfast. Um, on this trip, Mike was much better about resting than I was, frankly. Um, so what I would make a point to do is, and, and he had a very interesting routine himself. Mike is very much into uh, something you may be familiar with that I'm not called Winhoff breathing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I would get out of my tent in the morning and start packing it up and start uh, making breakfast. We ate oatmeal pretty much every day. And uh, if I did, if there was any sort of lull in my preparation, uh, as soon as I heard Mike start doing his Winhoff breathing, which was for a period of about 20 minutes before he would come out of his tent, that's when I would start making breakfast. So as soon as I saw him, I could hand him a bowl and we could start talking and enjoying food. Now, with the Wim Hof breathing, 
what benefits came from that? Um, for well, with bike riding and everything. Well, I know that. Uh, I know that Mike. I think we discussed this a bit on the previous podcast. Mike was a very accomplished athlete in high school, and um, he has a number of sports injuries that he battled during this trip, um, which I'm sure he'd be happy to tell you about uh, were he a guest on this show. And the Winhoff breathing helped him deal with pain. It helped him deal with exhaustion. Um, and in general, he would always wake up, and if he had his time to get prepared before he left his tent, he always came out um, ambitious and ready to tackle whatever challenge I had put in front of us. For those of you that don't know, and I guess we know who our next guest is, Tumbles, if he agrees, we'll get the information from you, Frankie, because that sounds incredible. For those of you who are not aware, um, the Winhoff method was developed I'm forgetting his full name off the top of my head, but look him up on YouTube. This guy holds the record for uh, longest time underneath the water. It's like four minutes, five, something ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, he holds the record for extended swim in some cold water underneath ice shelves. He does like half marathons across glaciers in just shorts and bare feet. And his whole philosophy is through controlling your breathing and exposure to cold and various conditions throughout many, many, many years, uh, the human body is capable of almost limitless potential. So, yeah, I would love to talk to, um, you know, Mike about that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, because I've the, never heard of anyone. <laughs> yes, his name is Wim Hof. His name got... is Wim Hof. Uh, he has like the Guinness Book of World Records for being in ice in low yes. temperatures. Yeah. Crazy, crazy guy. Um, <laughs> so I've never heard of someone, um, you know, I've only seen him on YouTube doing it. I've never heard of anyone or come across anyone that has tried to apply it. So that sounds really, really cool. Mike is living proof that it works because we both survived this trip. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but not everything went smoothly as stalking your Instagram, preparing for this. Uh, you, in one of your videos, you talked about a barb, which I didn't even consider because when I was into biking, I was off road. So I didn't have to worry about any of this crap, but it makes total sense. Uh, tires are made out of steel and when they blow, you get steel barbs in the road. Uh, we've all seen them on the side of the road and, you know, steel barbs and bike tires do not mix. So uh, can you tell us about that and any other mechanical issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of in terms of tires, you know, when I was when I was much younger, I always thought the thing that you had to avoid if you saw it on the road while on a bicycle was glass. I have ridden over glass um, on Vixen and Vega multiple times and fortunately never had an issue. Well, aren't you? I'm <laughs> sorry to interrupt you, Frankie, but Tumbles and I are, are laughing and laughing at each other because uh, I've been biking with Tumbles three or four times. And the last trip we made it two miles in and she got a double puncture from just tiny bits of glass that oh, she didn't wow. even see. 
We need to get you some Schwalbe tires. I guess so. I need to upgrade. <laughs> anyway, carry on, sir. We are sorry to interrupt. So, um, glass is what I always thought would puncture tires. And what I found out the hard way on more than one occasion, only though only once on this trip, right at the very end, is, uh, like you were saying, automobile tires um, and long-haul uh, 18-wheeler tires have steel belts that are in them, that when those trucks experience a blowout, you end up with tiny barbs of the belts from these tires scattered all over the highway. And to an automobile tire, which is obviously filled with steel belts itself, it's really a non-issue. Um, but because these things are so small, yet so sharp, um, my bicycle tires, which have a plastic liner in them that makes them much heavier than a traditional bicycle tire that you might find on a, on a very narrow track road bike. These metal barbs are strong enough to puncture the five millimeters of plastic in my tire and put a hole in the tube inside of it. But as you, as you, uh, as you pointed out, that was not the only issue mechanical issue that we had on the bikes. I'm very fortunate in that during this trip, the only maintenance that I ever had to do to Vixen, who was reassembled by uh, Wild Across America alum Corey. I don't know if we spoke about Corey on the um, the first the, the first time I was on the podcast. I'm friends with a fantastic bicycle mechanic from a local shop that I've gone to for years. Um, he did such a good job fixing Vixen between trip three and trip four that the only thing I ever had to do was adjust the pads on my disc brakes and beyond that and dealing with a flat on the last day of the trip, Vixen performed flawlessly. Now, Mike was riding my second bike, Vega, which I purchased while Vixen was broken. And I did not originally intend for Vega to become a tour bike, but when I was initially planning this trip and Mike expressed interest, I decided rather than him spending money on a tour bike that I would spend a little money preparing my second bike to do this tour, which was not something initially I thought was possible. But uh, once again, tour alum Corey helped me make happen. I thought we did a pretty good job preparing the bike. We changed a lot of parts on that bike. We added racks to it, which it did not come with. We changed the crank set, so the, the sprockets on the front of the bike, and we changed the rear cassette, the, um, the gears at the back of the bike. We also even changed the rear, um, we changed the rear brake caliper. We did not do any service or maintenance to the front brake before the bike trip. And um, what we found out the hard way, or to be, to be more specific, what Mike found out the hard way is that while the brakes on Vega were fine when we left for the trip with the bike with no weight on it, yeah, once we added the additional 50 pounds of gear and equipment on the bike, the front brakes were not quite up to snuff and Mike actually found this out while we were descending an unpaved mountain pass called Hagerman pass, <laughs> which is between the town of Leadville 
and the town of Basalt, very close to Aspen, Colorado. I mean, what what kind of grade are we talking? Uh, it varied, but I would say anywhere between uh, 1% and 8%, which 8% on a smooth road downhill, you can get a bike to about 40 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, fortunately, uh, Mike was able to, uh, control the descent of the bike until we were able to go to a bike shop in Aspen the next day, at which point we changed both the front and rear pads, um, on Vega and did some adjustment. And that seemed to solve the problem. Disc brakes, V brakes, what? What system, what setup? So both uh, Vixen and Vega are disc brake bikes, um, which, in my opinion, give you much more control and are much more durable. Um, Both both bikes now have Shimano front and rear disc brakes. Vega initially came with uh, a slightly lower quality, lower cost brand called Tektro. Um, I have learned my lesson and now the bike has front and rear Shimano brakes. And for those of you who are not cyclists, uh, disc brakes, V brakes and, and traditional old school brakes, the calipers and the brake pad um, pinch the rim and that causes friction, which slows the bike. Disc brakes work like a motorcycle. Uh, there is a steel disc in the center of the wheel, and that's where the pads and calipers grip, and it allows you to uh, your brakes to function when it's wet, because when your rim is wet, you really don't have any brakes even with V-brakes. So it's more like motorcycle brakes, basically. Well said. Yeah, it's it's the, the fact that the you can be confident that the bike will stop in wet weather is a huge difference. You also don't worry, have to worry about the stress of repeated hard braking, um, potentially damaging the integrity of the rim itself. Yep. Now, what does your fix kit look like? You bring a, a few key items if something goes wrong with the bike and has that changed since this issue? Well, I would say I thought I brought uh, a fairly comprehensive amount of parts with me on this trip. Every trip, I continue to bring more and more pieces to work on the bike. Spare chain links, tubes, uh, tire levers, a chain breaker. Um, And now I have two sets of brake pads for both bikes and all the tools that I need to remove and service the brake calipers um in the field excellent all right so let's talk about some of the stuff that you saw some of the sites that you saw um and since this is a hiking podcast let's talk about your hike uh in the gunnison route so what is that what was that like oh wow um the black canyon of gunnison national park or as the locals call it, Black Canyon National Park, Ooh, which question, is question. a canyon that... Um, I like how you're raising your hand, Tumbles. <laughs> I have a question. Tumbles um, in ahead. the back. 
<laughs> I'm curious if it's this, I don't know, you would know, but if this is the same Black Canyon as the ultra marathon that just happened last month. We need to check. I don't know. I, that's, that is a good question. Um, if it's in Colorado, probably. Okay. We, we will check anyway. If it isn't, I wouldn't know. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway. I love talking about this in particular because visiting uh, Black Canyon National Park was something that I did want to do. Um, actually going for uh, a hike down into the canyon all the way to the base of the canyon at the Gunnison River was not something I had planned on doing. Luckily, Mike and I were very ambitious this whole trip and managed to get ourselves a day ahead of schedule. And when we arrived at Black Canyon National Park, the, the day that we got there, we found out that there were three routes um, down to, apologies, that there were three routes down to the base of the canyon. Um, they do not call them trails because they are not marked. Okay. Um, and they are not marked by design. You have to get a permit from the from the uh the park office in order to complete them if you do not have them you will be fined by the national park service and removed from the park they only give you about 10 permits a day um and i discovered why during the uh during the trek down uh the gunnison route which of the three routes is the shortest and easiest um and it still took us i think almost three hours to travel a mile and a half from from the surface down to the base of this canyon why well i learned uh i learned about i, I learned a new word in the process of this i had never heard the word scree before <laughs> enough said um, <laughs> which if i remember correctly is a uh it's a layer of sliding rock. You know, mm -hmm. um, the descent of this route down to the base of the canyon was, I would say, 50 to 60% a controlled slide down scree. Sounds fabulous. Um, one, of, one of the most interesting parts of it, and it was the part that I, I maybe enjoyed the most and, I, and I'll never forget, was at a certain point, um, you start to pass below, uh, there's, there's, there's almost a, a big chunk of the trail where you leave almost like a tree line as you descend, because the scree is so thick and so unstable, there are no plants that grow through it. Um, and when you reach that point, there was at one of the trees on the route, a, uh, a steel link chain wrapped around the tree that was 80 feet long. And it was intended for you to lower yourself down the scree without being in an uncontrolled slide. That um, sounds awesome. I was very fortunate in that I wore my cycling gloves that day and it made controlling my slide down the scree via the chain a lot more comfortable. Um, did you go down backwards or like, cause it, I did go like down backwards. That seemed to be the safest thing. Yeah. To and I think a big part of why there's a limited number of permits is as we were coming back up, the people who I went hiking with, who I'd actually met the day that I got my permit, 
um, we had to be very careful about alerting each other when we knocked a rock loose to the person below us. Yeah. Um, which I watched someone that I was hiking with almost get struck by a rock much larger than my fist. And it made complete sense to me then why this could not be a high traffic trail, not, not even for limitations of maybe uh, ability or fitness, but the danger of sliding rocks to people who cannot see them. So you said 80 feet this chain was and going through yes. this three field. How much of a descent was the entire trail? It was 1,500 feet in a mile and a half. Okay. All right. It's three hours. That's awesome. It's the steepest route I have ever descended on. I am not an accomplished hiker. Um, I can I can say without a doubt, this is my greatest achievement on my feet. That's awesome. Well done. How long did it take you to climb out? I would say maybe a little less time because we were a little more confident going back up than we were going down. Um, it was also, it was also quite a bit warmer on the way back up. So we were able to remove some layers, mm -hmm. put them in our backpacks. And, uh, we started the descent in the dark. Oh, okay. I think we were on the trail to go down about half an hour before dawn. And there was a lot of cloud cover. So the lighting was not great. Fortunately, um, when we turned to come back up, we were under a clear blue sky. Not that we could see the sun from how deep we were in this canyon, but between visibility and it being a little warmer and us kind of having our, our legs under us at that point, I think we made it up about 30 minutes faster. Nice. Very That's nice. That's like a fun trick. <clears throat> yes, that put it on the list, Hummels. Okay. So there on your Instagram is a really cool video. You don't have a lot of these, which is why I was curious about this. But you have a point of view, like from the handlebars, as if, you know, the viewer was sitting on your handlebars going through, help me with the pronunciation, uh, Debak? De I believe this is Debek Ken. Debek. Okay. Um, which looks really cool. So what is your setup for that? Um, is there GoPro? You just hold the phone and pray. I mean, I know we have these little, um, that attach onto the handlebar and it's just for the phone. So you can maneuver the phone any which way. That's clever. I should probably invest in one of those. Um, <laughs> generally anytime, uh, you see a video of, uh, a, a moving video um shot from my bike it is generally with me with my cell phone in my hand um, I'm, I'm impressed because it was very steady well i i guess i would say uh i can't endorse this practice but <laughs> um the bike trips have definitely given me given me a lot of time to per perfect my ability to ride one-handed um and i have chose to exercise that to uh by uh filming for anyone who is interested in seeing the places I see. And Debec Canyon was, this is actually another instance of Mike and I diverting from our initial, initial route. I think the night, I think the night before we climbed up the Grand Mesa, which was our last big ascent in Colorado, I spent some time 
researching the area north of Grand Mesa because I saw a winding road that took you down into a river valley. And it was something I had not looked at. It was prompted actually by what we were talking about uh, when we were discussing the maintenance of the bikes um, and the and the issues that we had. Because Mike had had some issues, uh, not just related to the brakes, but also I would say um, with Vega using narrower tires than Vixen, which in, in part has to do with the differences in the bike's construction. I had to make a judgment call. And initially we were going to descend from Grand Mesa on uh, an unpaved forest road down to Grand Junction, uh, which was our, uh, our final destination. And given how much difficulty that we had had with the bikes descending Hagerman Pass, which was, to my knowledge, um, a much rougher road than the road we were planning to descend um, initially off of Grand Mesa into Grand Junction. I decided uh, with Mike's consent that we would instead go off route and descend to the north on a paved road, ride through Debec Canyon, which had glowing reviews from both cyclists and motorcyclists, and then ride, again, I cannot endorse this, a harrowing three miles along interstate along the shoulder of interstate 70 into grand junction colorado oh, wow. which is almost certainly where i ran over the barb that punctured the tire there you go sounds um, epic though yeah seriously i this just popped into my head i mean before you started your journey you had a map and you marked out where you wanted to go now, in terms of switching gears, switching routes, uh, potentially not having cell service, what uh, did you use an app? Did you did you bring physical maps with you? What'd you do? So I always try to have a contingency. I, every one of my every one of my bike routes I've built in an app called Ride with GPS. Generally, what I'll do prior to a trip is build an entire route. And then because that file size can sometimes be difficult to navigate on a smartphone, um, I'll break it up into smaller sections like uh, part, port, part A, part B, part C, part D, because that makes it a little easier for a cell phone to open and navigate the file. In addition to that, I'll use a more traditional navigating app like Google Maps, which gives you the ability to download data about a particular area so that you can use it without a connection to Wi-Fi or cellular service, which can be a problem in Colorado. Yeah, for sure. So, so that is, that is, I would say a combination of those two things, kind of, uh, an itinerary that's well-researched and in a pinch, um, using a navigation app with, uh, preloaded data about the area is generally how I navigate. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, hikers, I mean, we have basically have the same thing. I would say the thing about Colorado that makes it particularly interesting is if you are on a fully capable mountain bike, the routes from one place to another are almost limitless. But if you are on a bike that is not so capable on unpaved trails, there are only a finite amount of roads that you can take to get from one part of Colorado to another. And 
fortunately, that made crafting the route from the trip pretty simple. Awesome. Now, um, was the Colorado National Monument before or after Debec? That was after Debec Canyon. Okay. The and last... is that's like a, a canyon as well? So, it is, a, I, I suppose it is a canyon. The history of Grand Junction, um, of, of that area, which the Colorado River flows through. And that's where you believe... finished in Grand Junction? Yes. Okay. Um, in, the, in the final few days of the trip, Mike and I descended from the Grand Mesa through Debec Canyon along the Colorado River through Grand Junction um, to Colorado National Monument, which is about 10 to 15 miles west of the city of Grand Junction itself. And there is a road along the ridge line in Grand Junction that takes you back towards um, the city of Grand Junction. So we rode through the town, the city of Grand Junction and entered Colorado National Monument at its western entrance uh, where there is a campground. And then on the final travel day of the trip, we rode from that campground through the National Monument on the Ridge Road back to the city. Okay. And what is the monument's claim to fame? What's so special about that area? Well... For me, my my dream has always been to ride Vixen through the Red Rock Desert. It was a big part of why I chose my first solo tour to be through the Southwest in the winter. Mm-hmm. And I got small portions of that. But the Red Rock Desert, really the most um really the most the most ideal scene for that in America, you can only find really in two places, southern Utah and northern Arizona. But in a very, very small portion of Colorado, you can ride through and see Red Rock Desert. And that happens to be just west of the city of Grand Junction at Colorado National Monument, which is, I think, if you were to draw a straight line, less than 150 miles away from one of Utah's most famous national parks, Arches National Park, which is very close to the city of Moab. Another good um, ultramarathon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so what, like, geologically, how old is the monument? Because it does. It looks like the Grand Canyon. So do you remember? Did you research anything about the geology there? At, at the time, Mike and I definitely went into the visitor center and watched any and all the videos that they had for us. I have to imagine that uh, that that place, and if you get a chance to uh, listener visiting Colorado, don't miss um, Colorado National Monument. It's it's one of the most gorgeous places in the state. The historic Rimrock Drive. I'm yes. looking at their website. Okay, that's a 23 mile stretch of road in the monument. Probably a very a very comfortable and easy drive. A bit more challenging in ninety degree heat uh, under a cloudless sky. I would say, but um, very very rewarding. The Park Service also is aware of cyclists. Please stay alert for cyclists, slower vehicles, and wildlife. So you you're you're within that important realm. 
<laughs> that's that's uh, that's good to know. Mike and I were the only two cyclists we saw that day. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm looking at um, climate data for Colorado National Monument, 1991 to 2020. Normals and extremes, it looks like. 107 degrees was the absolute record high. So, yeah, that's that's pretty fucking hot. I'm trying to look. Dry heat, crank. Yes. Yeah, it's a dry heat, so it's it's not bad. (laughs) I gotta say, when we were in Las Vegas, it was maybe about 97 degrees, 100 degrees, and Mm -hmm. initially we didn't feel it. But it was only after we walked maybe two, two and a half miles, we're like, holy shit, it's really hot out. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that first five minutes you. is fine. But when you get to that fifth hour on the bicycle, it, it catches up with you. I bet. Wow. Yeah. I, that's, and just being in the saddle for for that long, um, yeah, that's that's got to be rough. So – we totally skipped over, and I want to make sure we get this in because I am very, very curious. Um, Mesa Verde, I know we're going out of chronological order on your trip. That's fine. But um, there are structures constructed by some peoples. How old are they? Who built them? Talk to us a little bit about that. Um, this was something I really wanted to get in while we have you here for round three. Absolutely. So when I arrived in Mesa Verde, I stayed there for two nights. And my rest day that I used, again, I use the term rest day loosely because Mesa Verde National Park is quite big. And I used my bicycle to uh, get to the different indigenous dwellings that I had the opportunity to visit. Why I was drawn to it is it is, to my knowledge, the largest... They are the largest cliff dwellings in the Western Hemisphere that we know about, and certainly the largest in America. Um, My memory from the hike is a little foggy on the concrete details, but if I remember correctly, they're about 800 to 900 years old, and um, they are much larger than they appear in pictures. I had the opportunity to visit two of them. One of them was called Balcony House. Uh, What's fun about that one is you actually have to descend uh, a a very tall ladder in order to get to it. So not everyone chooses to visit that one, particularly if they have a fear of heights or crawling through small spaces. Um, Cliff Palace is much easier to visit, uh, and it is very majestic. One of the things that I think we're very fortunate to be able to do is – if you reserve tickets, a, um, a National Park Service ranger will take you on a guided tour through the dwelling. And they give a fantastic talk about the purposes for every structure and every nook and cranny and why uh, it is the way it is, what its function was, how they've come to understand it. And by the end of both tours, the ancestral Pueblans as uh, they like to be called now, their descendants refer to themselves as ancestral Pueblins. That may have changed by the time you publish this. Um, They're fascinating people. And one of the last things, and it's the thing I can remember from the second tour, was it was a very peaceful morning when I had the opportunity to see this place. And the ranger told me, don't think of this as a peaceful place. We're here on a very quiet 
and tranquil morning. But this was a very loud and boisterous community. 150 people lived in this dwelling. There would have been the sounds of people uh, making clothing, crying babies, uh, cooking meals, skinning animals, celebrating, laughing, singing. And I think it's, I think it's a challenge to picture, but when you see it, when you see the scale of it, I think if you really take the time to imagine it like a city in present day, it's, it's really kind of a humbling experience. Oh, for sure. I know yeah. um, Checo culture in New Mexico, Bandelier has those cave dwellings too, where you have to climb a ladder. Uh, curious because the demise of those people is iffy. People don't really know what happened uh, to these ancient Pueblans. What did, do they have a, an idea of what happened to those people by uh, Mesa Verde? My understanding was that those uh, those dwellings were actually left willingly mm-hmm. long before um, long before any European settlers arrived in the New World. Right. Uh, and what it is believed caused their migration, I believe their migration south, was uh, changing weather patterns. That a part of a, a part of how that area, a part of how Mesa Verde functioned as a society was that the cliff, the cliff dwellings themselves, because they were under earth, protected their residents from shelter. And the area above them, because they would see rain from time to time, would allow them to grow crops. When that area started to become more arid, it was no longer sustainable for them to grow food. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they migrated to an area where agriculture would have been more sustainable. Oh, makes that makes yep. the most sense. I had the opportunity on my second trip to visit a cliff dwelling in northern New Mexico. And my understanding was that uh, that dwelling was also vacated for the very same reason. Uh, it was called the Gila Cliff, the Gila Cliff Dwellings, which are, I think, about oh, I know where you're talking about 30 to 40 miles north of Silver City, New Mexico. It's in the southern part of the state. Yeah, the pictures. Um, I'm glad that you made that distinction because I was just on the National Park site and the pictures make it look very tiny, but I'm glad that you pointed out that there's a a difference in scale there between what a photograph looks like and its actual size. At a distance, it looks like a model of a city, a scale model yeah. of a city up close. And then when you get there and you're looking... You're, you're standing at the base of a three, at some points, four-story stone building that is the better half of a thousand years old. It really changes things. And how awesome. preserved they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating because the rules about what you can and cannot do when you visit these dwellings have changed a lot since they were discovered. Mm. Um People, people, our parents or grandparents' age, when they were young, had they visited um, the cliff dwellings, they would have been able to go in every room and touch everything. And in an effort to try and preserve these places, what you are allowed to touch and where you can walk is very limited. Yeah, that makes sense. Just oil on your fingers, foot traffic. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, so let's talk about uh, finishing your trip. On the last day, you saw the first day of the Chicago Jazz Festival. 
So this is something that we enjoy on some of our hiking expeditions are things that are unexpected. And for me, a lot of the times it's not necessarily feet on the ground on the trail. I enjoy going off and seeing other parts of the country just as much as the actual trail. So that seems like it was something that you just kind of happenstance ran across, which is, you know, the best part of some of these trips. You're absolutely right. Uh, this was very much um, an, an unplanned and uh, unexpected surprise. On our way home from Grand Junction to New York, Mike and I switched trains in Chicago, and there was a layover while we were in Chicago, I think of about five to six hours. And so when we uh, disembarked one train, I pulled out my phone to see if there was anything locally that was happening that was interesting. And that was when I discovered that the Central Park of Chicago, which is called Millennium Park for uh, for any um, Illinois residents who may want to correct us, um, hosts a jazz festival at the end of the summer. And Millennium Park is less than a one-mile walk from uh, Chicago Union train station. So after Mike and I had had the opportunity to check our bikes and bags um, for the next train, we looked at each other and said, well, it's only about a 15, 20-minute walk. Why don't we walk down there and see how it is? It's free. And um, it was incredible. Mike and I got to enjoy some fantastic live music from local musicians on a warm uh, Chicago night. It was it was really I I wasn't expecting this trip to have such a an interesting finish that included a splash of of culture rather than nature, but it was really a great way to uh, enjoy the last night before I came home to New Jersey. It sounds like this trip, out of all of your trips, has the most culture that you've experienced. You took the time, and you visited different sites. Would you say that? I think so. Mm. Uh, one of the things that that I'm sure. I, that I didn't discuss much on my Instagram, but is something that happened was uh, for the very first time in my life, I went in a nude hot spring on this trip. <laughs> Proud of you. And uh, there's plenty, a lot of culture <laughs> to experience uh, when you're in a hot pool filled with uh, other naked people. I mean, you didn't have to travel all the way out there. You could have just gone to the shore, Jersey shore. That's true. Um, <laughs> that's very true. I don't have a good response for that. Fair enough. <laughs> was it comfortable? Where did you enjoy the hot spring? Absolutely. There, we ended up staying a second day. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Well, Mr. Frankie, I mean, the whole episode, all like the past two episodes have been stories about this trip, but could you think of one last story to kind of seal this trip up before we end? Sure. All right. There were a number of difficult days uh, on this trip for Mike, and there were a number of difficult days on this trip for me. Some of them we took together, some of them we took separately. On my initial itinerary, I had planned on visiting the city of Telluride, Colorado, which is a swanky ski resort town similar to Aspen. And the, the more time I spent with native Coloradans, the more I had learned that this was maybe a place that uh, did not have... Uh, that it had the views that I was looking for, but not necessarily 
the culture that I might have appreciated. And the nude hot spring that I had the opportunity to visit. In order to visit it with Mike, I would have had to ride a very long distance around the city of Telluride, or I could have ridden a very short and difficult distance over a second unpaved mountain pass that I knew very little about and I hadn't planned on riding. That pass is called Ofer Pass, and it's a road that can be traversed by Jeeps and high-clearance four-wheel drive pickup trucks. I chose to try and climb over it on Vixen, which it's 10 miles across, and I would say about evenly split, about five miles each way. And for the first three and a half miles up the west side, I was able to pedal. And for the last mile and a half, I basically had to drag Vixen over cinder block sized rocks for about two hours. Now, had you taken off most of your gear at this point, or you still have all of your saddlebags and your gear on there? The bike still weighed every part of 100 pounds. Oh, that's... I I can remember uh, about halfway up the section, I was no longer able to pedal. I passed a, a statue carved out of a tree that was the head of a mountain lion and carved below it were the words beware and i remember thinking to myself in that moment if i'm approached by a mountain lion i'm dead i'm totally exhausted carrying this heavy bike it will get to me before i have the chance to pull out a knife or my bear spray this will be my last day of this trip possibly my last day on earth um if for some reason an animal decides to visit me on my way up this excruciatingly steep mountain pass. At some point past that sign, I said to myself what I had said to myself at some point on almost every trip that I've taken, which is I'm going to make it to the top of this. And if I don't, it'll only be because I'm dead. And if I do die, I'll have been having a great time right up until that moment. And slowly but surely, Such kicking a and thing of you, yes. thing to say. <laughs> what the mind believes, the body achieves. I guess so. I can remember someone passing me in a jeep and being like, "Man, you're really badass." And I was exhausted, and I turned to him and I said, "No, sir, I'm just very stubborn." And sure enough, it took me about three and a half hours, I think, to get up one side. I made it to the top of Ofer Pass. I had no cell service, but I managed to take a picture of Vixen at the last sign above 11,500 feet. And then I rode down the other side just about as fast as I could without getting thrown over the handlebars. Nice. For me, that was one of the hardest days of the trip um, and also one of the most rewarding because after I had finished descending over pass, I had the opportunity to ride down the Million Dollar Highway, which for anyone unfamiliar is a highway that connects the cities of Montrose and Uray and Silverton with uh, a much larger city um, in Southern Colorado, uh, Durango. And this is a beautiful road that's been carved uh, into the side of this river valley in the San Juan mountains. 
and I had not planned on descend. I had not planned on uh, traveling it because it interfered a bit with my ability to visit Mesa Verde or so I thought. And the day that I got to climb over Ofer Pass and then descend the Million Dollar Valley was by far the most beautiful day of riding in the trip. That's amazing. Why is it called um, the Million Dollar Highway? Just because it was carved into this valley and it was so expensive to build? Or I think that's probably a part of it. Honestly, I think the best thing I can say is uh, if you want to know why it's called that, go see it for yourself. It is absolutely incredible. I didn't take one picture while I was in it because as I descended, I had to have my head on a constant swivel because of what was around me and how windy the road was. Hmm. All right. Well, folks, Google it if you can't get out there. If you can, just get out there. Yeah. Well, that was, I think that's a perfect story to end the the saga yeah the saga as well the three-part rocks and roots (laughs) saga of wild across america i love it awesome yeah thanks for having me back guys i haven't had the opportunity to um think about or talk about this trip in a while and it's 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 really nice to be able to revisit it because it was it was really something do you have anything planned for either this year or for 2024 for 2023, I think, uh, unfortunately, I might I may be on hiatus from taking any uh, extended tours. I think mm-hmm. it depends on. I think it depends on a number of things. One of the questions that I get asked uh, a lot by people who do not know me, who somehow stumble across Wild Across America, is how do you afford all this? And uh, the answer is barely. It is. It can be yep. very expensive to bicycle tour, even if you only sleep in your tent, even if you only travel uh, back and forth by train, and you're not flying and shipping your bike. And for for the reason of money, I don't think I'll be able to do uh, a trip this year. Next year, let's let's cross our fingers. I have some ideas. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, how I can make them plan out. I do have a trip that actually begins in Grand Junction and finishes in northern Arizona that I would love to discuss with you uh, as soon as I know it becomes a possibility. That sounds awesome. great. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, if that becomes a possibility, we'll talk about planning and we could do an episode leading up and then when you get back, we can uh, do a debrief. So, Fantastic. Uh, can you give us, before we let you go, your Instagram? And then I don't know if you have anything else because I've just uh, been stalking your Instagram. But can you give us, how can people find you? So if you want to find me, go on Instagram and search for Wild Across America. Wild is spelled W-I-L-D-E and then write Across America as you would normally spell it. And that's how you can find me. I'm always happy to answer any questions and share stories. And I love following other adventure cyclists. I check it very frequently to see what other people I've met or people I'm inspired by are up to. And yeah, at every opportunity that I can, I will uh, share more stories about this trip and hopefully trips to come. Awesome. Thank you very, very much, Frankie. We look forward to talking to you soon.
Yes. Great. Thank Thanks you, so much, Frank. guys. All right, Frank. All right, y'all. This was an awesome, awesome episode with Frankie once again. Third time's a charm. And uh, yeah, I mean, Frankie's Instagram is definitely more colorful than ours lately, but we will change that sooner than later in the next couple of weeks. Follow us uh, on the gram, rocks underscore and underscore roots underscore pod. Same name on the TikToks. If you want to email us with same name at Gmail, I mean, I don't check it, but whatever. Makes you feel better. All right. Instead of that, just DM us, say hi. If you have an idea for a uh, a guest to come on the show, let us know. We love chatting with y'all. All right. That's it. Ciao.